sometimes our questions stand out. Sometimes our questions really bother and frustrate us. Sometimes questions we have about life, faith, the universe, and our purpose make us feel all alone. Here's the truth. Everybody has doubts. Everybody has unanswered questions that don't make sense. Some of our doubts are seemingly small, and some of our doubts have really stumped us. Doubts can either hold you back or move you forward. So the question is, where are your doubts taking you? Well, we're all still living in the afterglow of last weekend at the Ford Center, but this week we begin a series of four messages we're calling Room for Doubt, and we're intentionally trying to bring back at least half of our Easter crowd of 7,600 during these four weekends in April. Now, you know we're not about the numbers, but we especially want to relate to all those in our worship assembly on Easter who may have honest doubts about the four most critical questions of the Christian faith. Or as Todd said, you might have kids in college, you might know friends or co-workers who are wrestling with these four questions that we're going to address the next four weeks throughout the month of April. And the first one we'll address today is how can we be sure that God actually exists? That's the mother of all doubts. We're going to address it this morning. The next week, isn't the Bible full of myths and mistakes? You hear this a lot. Is it true? Can it stand the test of scrutiny? Third question, why would God allow tragedy and suffering? That's an important question. It's one we dealt with last year after Easter when we had a series called You Ask For It. We're going to reprise that this year, only rather than my preaching on it, uh, Pastor Patrick Garcia will preach on that topic the third week. And then the final week, why do Christians say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? We believe those are the four most critical questions regarding our faith. And the bottom line is this. There is room for doubt. And there is room for doubters here at Crossroads. In fact, I believe that Jesus is partial to honest skeptics. Thomas was one of Jesus' disciples who doubted that he rose from the dead in spite of the eyewitness testimony of the other ten disciples. And Thomas knew they were good guys. Thomas knew they were truth-tellers, but he said, I don't believe it. So in John chapter 20, the disciples are all together. They're behind closed windows and locked doors. And Jesus came and stood among them, and he immediately immediately went to Thomas, inviting him, put your finger here and feel the nail prints in my hands. Reach out your hand and place it in my side. Feel where the spear was thrust. Stop doubting, Jesus said, and believe. And that personal encounter was all it took for Thomas. Seeing was believing. He said to Jesus, my Lord, and my God. And it's what Jesus said to Thomas next that is especially convicting to me. He said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There is a reason why John included this narrative in his account of the life of Christ. 
I don't think we're reading into the words of Jesus here to say that he not only understands doubt, he expects it, he's not threatened by it, he is not put off by doubt, quite the contrary. He welcomes it. And in fact, a personal encounter with him can resolve doubt like nothing else and bring you to the place where you say, my Lord and my God. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Let's begin at the beginning by addressing this question, how can we be sure that God actually exists? I heard about a university professor of philosophy who asked a single question on the final exam. He picked up a chair, he set it on his desk, and he wrote on the board, using everything we've learned this semester, prove this chair does not exist. Well, the students opened their notebooks and they began writing all they could think of for a couple of hours. Some of them turning in 25 pages of heady philosophical logic and mental argument, except for one student. One student who turned his paper in after less than a minute. His essay response to the challenge to prove the chair does not exist consisted in two words. What chair? <laughs> Smart kid. Well, today we're dealing with the question of God's existence. And doubting the existence of God has always been the foundational strategy of Satan. In Genesis chapter 3, he began by trying to get Eve to question God. And through the years, the devil, our accuser, has ramped up his campaign. And today, today there are growing contingencies of people in our world who look at what Christians believe and they say one of two things. Number one, they say, I don't believe God exists. Now, that would be the category of atheists. Or they say, I can't know if God exists. That would be agnostics. And both of these groups, atheists and agnostics, are saying the same thing. They're saying that they don't have enough evidence to believe that God exists. And quite honestly, the Bible does not take us deep into systematic theology to try and prove God's existence. Scripture declares God's existence more than it defends it. God's Word intentionally leaves room for doubt because unless we have the capacity for doubt, you understand there is no way for us to exercise our faith. And Hebrews eleven six 6 says, without faith... It is impossible to please God because he who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You see, if God made his existence undeniable and indisputable, there would be no such thing as faith. Believing in God would not be optional, you see. It would be mandatory. But God in his wisdom has made faith voluntary in our relationship with him and faith is defined in Hebrews chapter 11 1 as being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see so faith is necessary but the faith that's necessary is certainly not blind faith listen 
God has given us enough evidence to have a well-reasoned, well-documented, well-grounded faith, but not so much evidence that faith is not required. Over the last decade, we've seen a resurgence of a militant atheism here in the West that is intent on driving belief in God from public consciousness. You've got atheistic evangelists like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris who've written bestsellers entitled, God is Not Great, The God Delusion, Letters to a Christian Nation. And the late Carl Sagan, a former American agnostic astronomer, and author, when he was questioned about the existence of God, and he was questioned about it quite often, he would say, and I quote, these are his words, well, I'm not saying I know there is no God. It's just that if there is, no evidence exists for it, end quote. And I, for one, certainly do not believe that is true. There is a ton of evidence for God's existence, But now if someone is looking for irrefutable proof of the existence of God, they're not going to find it. Nor can anyone produce irrefutable proof that God does not exist. But if someone is looking for strong evidence, if they're looking for clues, if they're looking for God's fingerprints, they can be found in many places. And that's why we're told in 1 Peter 3.15 to always Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Now, the last time I preached a message on the existence of God was back in 2009. 2009, we had a series called A Reason to Believe. And we have frequently checked those videos out of our resource center to parents of college-age students, sometimes to some of our young adults, but I want you to know that this message today is not that message from 2009. In that message in 2009, I took a more intellectual, more apologetic approach, and I talked about the cosmological proof for the existence of God, and I talked about the teleological proof for the existence of God, and I talked about the axiological proof for the existence of God. This morning taken a completely different and fresh approach, a non-intellectual approach. I want to take a more devotional approach, and so if you will, go with me to Psalm 19. You can pull the Bible out of the pew back in front of you. You can cue it up on your device, or you can read it on the screen. I want us to look at the words of David, and I want us to see together today in the devotional writings of King David the reasons why he believed in the existence of God. Here are David's words. This is the word of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them yet Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun, 
It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned in keeping with them. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, laced into this psalm are the reasons why David was not an atheist reason why David was not an agnostic he gives us his reasons for believing in the existence of God and the first one is that the created world testifies that God exists it's in verses one to four listen the heavens declare the skies proclaim day after day they pour forth speech night after night they display knowledge their voice goes out into all the earth their words to the ends of the world in other words Creation testifies that God exists. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Sounds a whole lot like this Psalm 19. For what may be known about God is plain. God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Well, down through the ages, even unbelieving scientists have recognized God's existence as creator. In the biography of Albert Einstein, Walter Isaacson told about a dinner party in Berlin where everyone at the dinner party assumed that Einstein was an atheist. But on that occasion, Einstein said, quote, No, I have a deep feeling of faith a deep religiosity that comes from my appreciation of the way the Lord made the universe. Everyone was stunned. Isaacson continued by saying, in some ways, Einstein's belief in God, that God had created an orderly universe, underpinned and informed his science. That's Einstein. And although not a professed believer, Stephen Hawking one of today's foremost theoretical physicists has been honest enough to say the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think clearly there are religious implications whenever you start to discuss the origins of the universe. Hawking said it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except 
as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. Just the uniqueness of our world shouts that we have a benevolent creator. If the earth were one degree closer to the sun, we'd fry. If the earth were one degree further from the sun, we'd freeze. If the moon were any closer or larger, the tides would destroy the coastline. If the moon were any smaller or further away, marine life in the ocean could not be sustained. If our distance from Jupiter were any greater, asteroids and comets would pepper the earth. If we were closer to Jupiter, our orbit would become unstable. If Earth's surface gravity was any stronger, it would retain too much ammonia and methane and we would asphyxiate. If gravity were any weaker, Earth's atmosphere would lose too much water and we would not survive. If the Earth's crust were any thicker, it would absorb too much of our oxygen. We could not breathe. If it were any thinner, the Earth would move and shake beneath our feet and stable life would be impossible. In 1959, scientists discovered the fact that the earth is perfectly balanced. So wherever there's a mountain mass on one side of the earth, something of equal weight is on the opposite side of the earth. That's why the earth does not wobble out of orbit. An utterly amazing balancing act. There is a global weight distribution of land and mountains and valleys and water. How does this happen except by design which requires a designer? And most in the thinking scientific community admit to the fine-tuning of the cosmos. And of course, this rattles the cages of the atheistic community. And these facts just go on and on and on, the heavens and the earth, all declaring the creative genius of God. Creation pours forth speech, testifying to the existence of God. But there's another reason why David reveals his belief in God. He says that the Old Testament, the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, identifies testifies that God exists in verses 7 through 12 we just read it the law of the Lord what do he say perfect the statutes of the Lord trustworthy the precepts of the Lord right the commands of the Lord radiant the fear of the Lord pure the ordinances of the Lord altogether righteous more precious than gold sweeter than honey in keeping them that is in keeping his laws there's great reward so we move from the natural revelation of God in the created world to the special revelation of God in the Old Testament. John Wesley wisely noted, man could not have written the Bible if he would have, and he would not have written the Bible if he could have. Now skeptics reject that idea. They believe the laws of the Old Testament were not written by the inspiration of God, that they were simply borrowed from other cultures of the day. But in making these claims, they don't tell you the whole story. Rulers of the Near East were constantly trying to maintain their personal, political, and economic power, and they always were bent on protecting their image as lawgivers. So if there was a previous king who had already distinguished himself in this way, then they simply incorporated his ideas into their own legal system. So, 
A king was to hand down laws that were clear and just and true no matter where he got them. And they got them from each other. But in contrast, the Bible reveals that God's people received their laws from God himself and they did not change. In Israel, the kings and prophets read God's law to the people at certain times of the year, but it was immutable. It was unchangeable. It was unbreakable, unlike the laws of the pagan nations. Now, the difference between the laws of men and the laws of God boil down to two things. Men's laws are in a constant state of flux. They're constantly changing and evolving based on human reasoning, human judgment. God's laws cannot be changed. And man's laws rarely place a high value on human life, but God's laws always placed a high value on human life. And friends, there was a time in the history of our country when our founding fathers' approach to making laws was based on the Word of God. It was based on the Bible, but today our laws are increasingly based upon the whims and the preferences of each generation and of the changes on the Supreme Court and upon the rule of the majority. And the result is this continual erosion of morality and the value of human life. And today you'll serve more prison time for the inhumane treatment of an animal than the inhumane treatment of a human being and we're seeing babies eliminated before or shortly after making their entrance into the world while their organs are scavengered for profit and as of October 2015 human euthanasia is legal in the Netherlands in Belgium in Ireland in Colombia. So if you have any plans to travel there, you might plan on staying healthy or you might come home in a pine box, you know. Suicide is now legal in Switzerland, Germany, Japan, Albania, Canada, and in the states of Washington, Oregon, Vermont, New Mexico, Montana, and California as of January 2016. And as we continue to change our laws, moving farther and farther away from God's laws, as we devalue the human life that God's laws value and protect, we're seeing more and more violence and death. Since the attack on the World Trade Center towers, the world has grown accustomed to reports of suicide bombers. But here in America, suicide bombing remains frustratingly mysterious. We're repulsed by the likes of Timothy McVeigh, who initiated the Oklahoma City bombing of the Murrah Federal Building that killed 168 innocents and injured 680. And we were so incensed because we have no context in our culture, we have no context for understanding the conscienceless killing of innocence. And it's because of the last vestiges of Judeo-Christian values 
the last vestiges of a Judeo-Christian view of human life in our American culture, but you can't help but wonder how much longer we can hold out, how much longer our way of life will last as we delve deeper into immorality, as we delve deeper into making laws that violate God's values and deny his existence. We're on a self-destructive path right now, my friends. The stakes are very high. It's very serious. And there's a final reason we see for David's belief in the existence of God. It's not only because of what he sees when he looks at the world around him. It's not only because of what he sees when he looks into the law of God, the word of God, the Old Testament. But David's personal relationship with God testifies that God exists. David understood that God would help him live his life in ways that would reflect God's character. He believed that the Lord would forgive his hidden sins. He expected that the Lord God could and would keep him from being enslaved by willful sins so he could be innocent and blameless, not guilty of any great transgression. He asked God to help him control his speech and his influence his thought life. It's right there in that psalm, verses 13 and 14. He prayed for God to be his rock and his redeemer. So how did David get to the place that he desired God's partnership in life? And he believed that God would partner with him in life. How did David come to the place that he experienced the friendship of God, a relationship with God, fellowship with God? How did he get to the place that he regularly communicated with God? How did he get to the place that he looked for and expected God to be active in sharing life with him? Well, David had time spent in solitude taking care of his father's sheep and he played music and sang praise to God and he meditated on God's word in solitude and it gave him a consciousness of God. It gave him a supernatural confidence, a capacity to live his life without fear. He wasn't afraid of the lion. He wasn't afraid of the bear. Later, when he heard that the giant Goliath was mocking the Lord, he was incensed, and David spoke with conviction. The Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion. He delivered me from the paw of the bear, and he'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Where did he get his capacity to put his head down and drive into the teeth of threatening situations? We're back to Hebrews eleven six. Anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. To earnestly seek him is to experience the promise in this verse that you will experience his reward in your life when you partner with him in your life in a serious way, in a substantial way. And you may say, hey, my life is just fine. I like it the way it is. I'm satisfied with the way things are. I don't have to believe that God exists to live my life. Well, that is true. But you just do not know how good, how deep, how blessed your life could be. You've settled. And you don't realize it. You don't know what it is to live the abundant life that's only experienced by those who believe that he exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. 
Once you know the joy of his presence, I'll tell you this, you will never settle for less again. Thomas Huxley lived in the 19th century. He was a well-known agnostic. He was called Darwin's bulldog for his fierce advocacy of the theory of evolution. Huxley had very little formal education. He was self-taught, but he was loud and boisterous and persuasive. And he found himself in the company of a group of men one weekend. On Sunday morning, most of them were preparing to go to church, and Huxley approached one of the men who was known for his Christian character, and he suggested, hey, listen, rather than go to church this morning, suppose you stay here and tell me why you are a Christian. The man hesitated because he knew he could not match personality to personality. He couldn't match wits with Huxley. But Huxley gently said, I don't want to argue with you. I just want you to tell me what Jesus Christ means to you. So the man did that. Throughout the morning, he told Huxley about what Jesus had done in his life and what the Lord meant to him. And when he was finished, there were tears welled up in Huxley's eyes as he said, I would give my right hand if only I could believe that. Listen, folks, God gives us enough evidence to believe. And yet he leaves enough doubt for us to have the option to disbelieve. He's very careful to protect our free will. He gives us the space to respond to him or to reject him. For him to outright prove his existence and remove all doubt would require that people serve him out of obligation for fear of being punished rather than out of love. When we serve him out of obligation, that's religion. And he's not interested in that. When he, when he has our voluntary affection, when he has our voluntary attention, then it's a personal relationship. So Psalm 34, verse 8. Taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man, the woman, who takes refuge in him. So I purposely have not taken a purely intellectual approach this morning. I purposely have not taken an argumentative approach today. I purposely have not taken a debate posture today for one reason. I know that doubt will be dispelled more by seeing God's providential love for us in creation, seeing God's protective love for us in the Old Testament, seeing God's personal love for us and his desire to have a relationship with us to share life with us for our good. And it is more than ironic to me that the one who has made this relationship with the living God a daily reality and an eternal hope for us all is Jesus, the Son of God, who is also referred to as the Son of David. Will you stand and pray with me? 
And if you are here this morning and you have a decision to make, we want to talk with you. Just remain seated here in the worship center and we will come to you. If you have a further question that you want to have answered, if you want to counsel with someone about a spiritual matter, or you want a prayer partner for someone in your world who is wrestling with issues of faith. We want to talk to you. We will come to you. All you have to do is be seated as others are leaving, and we will come to you. Let's pray. Father God, you, you are overall. You are the self-existent one, the one whose existence does not depend on anyone or anything. You have always been, you are, you always will be the one there for us. And Father, because we begin in a womb and we end in a tomb, it's hard for us to take in your divine nature. Thank you that at the heart of who you are is a mystery that we cannot comprehend with our finite minds. I thank you for the wonder, the majesty of who you are and how you move in the affairs of men and women and in our lives personally. And we pray, Father God, that we would stand on our feet today with our heads high because of the confidence that we have that you are there for us in the stillness at times and in ways where we can trace your hand so often. We thank you for revealing yourself to us and leaving no doubt in our minds about your existence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here. God bless you as you go this morning.